Gracious God, over the next few moments, what we pray more than anything else is that your Holy Spirit will become the vehicle of a gospel message. Using broken instruments like a text that was written so long ago and our words today, we pray that they become a, if you will, um, the means or the instrument, but not without those words being saturated with your gospel message and your good news. It's for your kingdom that we pray and ask these things. Amen. All right. Thank you, John. We're going to cover what I would call two what could go wrong moments uh, here. The first, uh, I will tell you that earlier this week I was talking to our mayor and friend Skip Henderson and we were talking about the uh, difficulty of this book in many respects. And uh, uh, you have to remember that reading the book really is its own reward. Uh, If you get through it to the end, uh, pat yourself on the back, Uh, but read it again because there's a lot that you miss on a first reading. Um, It is basically formatted as being uh, a correspondence, a series of letters from a senior demon screw tape to his nephew, who is a young apprentice aspiring demon, uh, Wormwood. What makes it interesting is we do not have Wormwood's letters. We only have Screwtape's letters. So you have half of the conversation or half of the dialogue here. Also, recall that since we're talking about demons, this is a reverse mirror image of the Christian view of the world. So when you have our Father referenced, it's not our Father who art in heaven, it's the devil. And when you hear our Father's house, We're not talking about heaven, okay? We're talking about hell. And so, as Skip said, what could possibly go wrong? We have half a conversation, and we're looking at it in a reverse image. And I agree with that. But uh, I do think that the book bears close reading. Uh, I will confess to you that there are a couple of sentences that I've read two or three times, and I'm still... Have you know? I still have them underlined and have a great big question mark in the margin. So I'm going to count on John to explain that to me. Well, actually, we emailed C.S. Lewis to see if he could help explain it. Right. We're still waiting. Yeah, It'll be a long wait. <laughs> but um, we did observe, and this is just by way of a quick review, uh, that although Screw Tape Letters is a novel with fictional characters, Screw Tape, Wormwood, Glubose. Great names, by the way, Glubos. That's, that's one of my favorites. Uh, the patient, the patient's mother. Although each and all of these characters are fiction, they are from Lewis's imagination, the evil, the scheming, the machinations on display in the screw tape letters are very real. Uh, the coordinator uh, behind the demons, the life force behind the demons, the puppet master is their father, Satan, and he is real. Uh, We looked at a quote from uh, Mere Christianity, sort of to set the stage for how Lewis views evil uh, and the personification of evil. Uh, And that's where Lewis points out that Satan is not a concept. He's not a symbol. He's not a cartoon character dancing around uh, with a pitchfork and a pointed tail. Uh, He's very real. He knows us very well. He's very actively engaged. Uh, He is called the Lord of this world, or the uh, ruler of this world. Um, He has two principal tasks we learned about last week. And those tasks reflect exactly how Satan operates in direct opposition to God. Can anyone recall 
I'm going to make y'all ask questions or answer questions. <laughs> Can anyone recall the two main goals of Satan as revealed through Scripture? We talked about them last week. Okay. This is where everybody's head has a little bit of Jeopardy music playing. In right, the right. What is? Yeah. Um, first goal is to keep the lost lost. Okay. He does not want people to come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. How does he do that? Through lies, through deception. Also, his second role, his second great goal, is to rob the believer of the benefits of their salvation. In other words, you can be saved, but just don't act like you're saved. Don't enjoy salvation as Christ intended you to enjoy it. Um, he wants to keep us from enjoying the benefits of that salvation. So I would say that this is really a second role of Satan. First, he's the, the great deceiver, uh, but he's also the thief of joy, uh, the thief of pleasure, as Christ intends it for us. Uh, last week, we also looked at numerous New Testament descriptions of Satan. I'm going to zero in on just a few from John chapter 8. Jesus referred to Satan as a murderer from the beginning. He said there is no truth in him. He is a liar. And in case you missed the point, Christ calls him the father of lies. The father of lies. What a descriptor. What a description. In other words, the DNA of every lie that's ever been told goes back to a common father, Satan, the devil. Uh, you first see his capacity for deception with our ancestors in Eden. And he's been spreading lies and spewing them out ever since. Uh, this week, we're also going to look a little bit more at Satan as the thief of Christian joy. Uh, but before we totally leave last week... Um, and before I hand this over to John, uh, we should recall that last week we focused heavily on what Lewis calls the law of undulation. And undulation is one of those big SAT words sent me scrambling for the dictionary. Uh, uh, but basically we're talking about a cycle of wavelength action, uh, peaks and troughs. And it's similar to those that run all through the natural created order, whether with our heartbeats, the seasons, our sleep, the patterns of our sleep, you see undulating patterns that are typical of, of nature as God created it. And Lewis points out that that also exists in our spiritual nature, uh, where we have mountaintop experience alternating with deep spiritual valleys. So, John, what do we need to recall about the law of undulation and how to navigate through the troughs? Yeah, the, the law of not undulation, the, the thing that we need to remember is when we're in that trough, when you compare the, the mountaintop to the valley, just remember the valley will not last forever. It is not the new reality of your spiritual uh, relationship with God. Things and episodes that are controlled by so many external influences and catalysts that, uh, that it's easy for us to think that when we are in the wilderness, that God has left us, that God has abandoned us, or even worse, that we have done something wrong, and because we haven't kept our end of the deal, God has let us fail, or God has removed himself from us. And this is not just a slippery slope, it is a slope that has nothing good at the end of that slide. 
So we need to remember a, a few things, as we said last week. You know, commit that, that, that uh, you will not forget that God loves you, that you have sacred worth. Don't forget that, commit yourself that you will not forget God's faithfulness, and commit now that God is, is real. As we think about the law of undulation, it's, it's important that the devil, when he has you in that trough, um, that's where he sometimes works his greatest mischief. It's also, though, as Lewis points out, where God works his, his greatest uh, uh, purpose and his greatest work in our lives. Um, you recall from the, maybe from last week, that some great individuals uh, have uh, remained in the trough for a very, very long time, and that's where God has done his best work in those wilderness experiences. This week, we ask you to read along from chapter 10 all the way to chapter 13. And John and I thought it would be helpful uh, to focus on some of what's going on in the last two chapters of today's reading, 12 and 13. So I'm going to look a little bit more deeply at chapter 12 with you, and then John's going to lead us through chapter 13. So what's going on at this point in the plot? And it is important to remember that this is a novel. Just as it has characters, it has a plot. There's a story being told. At this point, the patient has made some new friends. Okay? And they're the kind of friends that you don't really need. Uh, if he were in a courtroom, I could say a judge telling him to stay away from these friends because they do him no good whatsoever. They are worldly, they are sophisticated, they are condescending, they are cynical about all things in a knowing and superior way. Uh, that's my quote. Uh, that's kind of how I described them when I was trying to write out what they're like. Here are Lewis's words. They are rich, smart, superficially intellectual. This is at the beginning of letter 10. Brightly skeptical about everything in the world. I gather they are even vaguely pacifist. Remember, this book was written during the Battle of Britain. So Britain was divided between those who thought that a more robust approach was needed with Hitler and a more pacifistic approach was needed. Uh, he says, I gather they are even vaguely pacifist, but not on moral grounds. No morals for these folks. They're way too sophisticated to have morals. But from an ingrained habit of belittling anything that concerns the great mass of their fellow men, and from a dash of purely fashionable and literary communism, this is excellent. Okay? This is excellent, fertile territory uh, for a demon to work. So these are worldly uh, friends who the patient has made, uh, and the uh, demons are determined to exploit this relationship and use it to derail the patient on his Christian journey. Um, these friends appeal to the patient's vanity. Um, gradually, now you need to think back a little bit on chapters 10 and 11, these new friendships were first introduced and then they took hold and they provided all sorts of opportunities for Wormwood to tempt the patient bring about backsliding and a drifting away from God. Uh, remember, the devil wants to keep us lost, but uh, he also wants to keep the converted from living life abundantly. You remember Christ said he came to uh, give us life and to, to allow us to lead it abundantly. So in chapter 12, we're focusing on how the evil one 
fulfills both of those goals. But especially the second goal, uh, prevent this patient from leading the abundant life. Um, anybody have any questions so far? Comments? Okay, we had mentioned that we were going to maybe break here for some questions, but uh, at any rate, we can just keep moving along. Um, bottom line here is this should be a moment of heady exhilaration for Wormwood. It's time to take off the training wheels. He is doing so well with this patient. Uh, uh, however, Screwtape fears that Wormwood is moving too fast. Uh, and in chapter 12, he counsels a more cautious, slow, and deliberate pace with this particular patient. So Screwtape provides guidance on how to steer the patient cautiously and deliberately on a slow and careful path to hell. What we have here is a deep dive into how people, especially new believers like the patient, uh, fall away from the faith and the truth. Um, first, on being a Christian uh, uh, and being appealing to these new friends, the patient finds himself on the horns of a dilemma. Uh, he's leading a double life. Uh, he's trying to appeal to his falsely sophisticated friends uh, and trying to appeal to his, and not appeal to, but I guess appeal to his Christian friends to a certain extent, but live into this Christian faith to which he's become converted. So he's convinced himself that he can do both things, that he can be fashionable with these new friends and uh, have fashionable morals and uh, fashionable situational convictions, uh, but also that he uh, uh, can be devoted and grow in the faith. And that's right where the demons want him. They want to keep him right at that point. Because if you're leading a double life, you're under tremendous stress. It's very hard to walk that tightrope. And eventually, one thing that's going to happen is you're going to fall. And it really doesn't matter which direction you're going to fall as long as you fall. And so that's sort of what is going on here. Um, I found at this point that it was useful to go back to that great passage in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? Desperately wicked. This is about our capacity for self-deception. If we tell ourselves something long enough, we'll believe it. It will become our truth. That doesn't mean anybody else believes it. I mean, people look at you and they just shake their head. But uh, if, if, if you tell yourself something long enough, uh, it's sort of built into our nature that, that we will believe it. We have a tremendous capacity for self-deception. So let's put this all together so far. You have the father of lies, and he is walking into the garden of self-deception. Okay, the father of lies, and he is here on the fertile ground of the human heart, uh, with a uh, young patient who is leading a double life. What could possibly go wrong? I told you we're going to ask that question twice, and so we've asked it twice. It's only natural that the father of lies would capitalize uh, on our tremendous capacity for self-deception. And that's what's going on in chapter 12. I think that if you look for that sort of pattern, father of lies capitalizing on the patient's self-deception, that you'll see that here. Um, the patient is leading his double life. 
Uh, he's partying and enjoying the bright lights of Saturday night, but church on Sunday morning. Uh, he's hopping from log to log, uh, as we would sometimes say. Um, the patient tells himself, I've got this. I'm doing just fine. I've got this under control. And in the meantime, he's telling himself all sorts of things about moderation. Uh, he's telling himself that some of these new Christian views are outdated. They're outmoded. They're, quote, puritanical, end quote. Uh, and you have a section where the demons are celebrating the misuse to which the word puritanical has been put. And ultimately, the patient is moving along to a position of what we sometimes call religious moderation. And uh, the, the guiding uh, statement there, and it's on the back of, of a book that I, I have been using, uh, and I think John's been using it too, to kind of get ready for these lessons. A moderate religion is as good for us as no religion at all, and more amusing. So this is very fertile ground for the demons to work. Um, but what's going on? All is not sweetness and light from a demonic, demonic point of view. Uh, the patient says, I've got this. But he also, in chapter 12, has this vague little pinprick way down in the depths of his soul of unease, the feeling that something is not quite right with his spiritual life. Something is slightly off balance. Uh, so how does Wormwood suggest that this be dealt with? Wormwood has an answer for every problem that comes along. Screw tape should capitalize on the patient's capacity for self-delusion and self-deception and keep the patient unaware of what is going on with himself spiritually. Um, keep the patient feeling uneasy and stressed out about this double life, but don't let this vague feeling of unease blossom into repentance. Whatever you do, don't let it go in that direction. Instead, screw tape should induce the patient not to face the uneasiness, not to face the cause of the uneasiness, lull him into a state of spiritual dullness. And there's another quote, and I don't remember if we put this on a slide or not, but this sort of summarizes, I think, what is going on here. We're told, and this is, I should say, screw tape talking or writing, as the uneasiness and his reluctance to face it cut him off more and more from all real happiness, and as habit renders the pleasures of vanity and excitement and flippancy at once less pleasant and harder to forego, but that is what habit unfortunately does to pleasure, you will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract the patient's wandering attention. You no longer need a good book, which he really likes, to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. So the idea here is to take this, this period of spiritual dullness, uh, this stress of leading the double life, uh, and use it to kind of nudge the patient further and further away from God and the good pleasures that come from God. Uh, and that really kind of moves us along toward chapter 13, uh, where there's a more full-blown exposition of those pleasures. But let's just uh, look very quickly at that quote from page 44. Um, pleasure originates from God. Uh, there is not a single pleasure that originates with Satan. Uh, 
you hear Wormwood or you read Wormwood and Screwtape discussing this. Uh, and it said that despite all of their research in hell, their best scientists have been trying to invent pleasure, but they can't. All pleasure comes from God. Uh, and all Satan can do is corrupt God-given pleasure. He cannot invent it himself. So chapter 12 closes with screw tape um, uh, and wormwood sort of uh, working to keep the patient unaware of his true plight. Uh, and this is where the chapter sort of leaves off. Uh, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, with sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Uh, and for me, probably the, the key words there are without milestones, without signposts. In other words, keep the patient away from the milestones and the signposts that would come from Bible study, from going to church, from fellowshipping with other Christians. Just keep them on that soft, gentle, dull slope that winds up at the gates of hell. Uh, I am remembering something now that John shared last week about the undulation law. Uh, and that's that we're in the troughs. When we're in the troughs, the devil, father of lies, seeks to keep us there by making us forgetful of that peak that is behind us, the peak that we have been on before. But he also wants to block out the view of the peak ahead of us. Uh, we sing the hymn, O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. And the devil blocks out both the our hope in ages past part as well as the our hope for years to come part. Uh, and that's what you really see going on here. There's finally a quote about pleasure, uh, and I apologize a little bit for moving back and forth, but this is where chapter 12 leaves the patient. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. It is more certain and it's better style. And so that's where they're hoping to leave this patient uh, at this point on his spiritual journey. Keeping him unaware uh, um, uh, and keeping him deceived, unable to see or at least think about God's work in his life in the past what God has promised in the future is the modus operandi of the devil, of the deceiver. But it's also by being the thief of joy that the devil brings about this objective uh, by basically depriving the patient of the pleasure that he would ordinarily find in some of the simple things of life. And so at this point, I think we're probably at a good jumping off place for chapter 13. Sure. So, so keeping that in mind, that, um, that what... Uh, Satan wants us to do as Christians is get to this place where we're okay with moderate Christianity. Don't let anyone call you a Jesus freak. You believe in forgiveness? Well, that might be something of old. That you got to work for this and to be okay with spiritual complacency. That you have enough Jesus and that's enough. Enough religion. I got enough. I come, I come to church every so often, maybe once a week, and that's enough. Where, you know where that leads us? It leads us to a place where it becomes easy for us to compartmentalize everything we believe about Christ. 
Put him in a box, you know, put him in a night. We're going to pull him off a shelf for Sunday or Bible study or our reading our daily bread or what we do, our upper room or our devotionals. But then we're going to put it back up on the shelf and we're going to leave it there to the next time. And that is, that is the, the, the sad part of that is, is what we lose as, as Christians and being Christians throughout the day, what the Spirit of God gives us and, and, and reminds us. And, um, and of all, but, but what it also does is it puts us into a place where it's easy for us to separate and segregate and keep that over there because Jesus... The call is not to be a Christian and then a student, a parent, a grandparent, aunt, uncle, but to, but to be a Christian parent, a Christian student, a Christian son, daughter, brother, sister, whatever. This is where the rubber meets the road. And if, if a sort of conversion happens between letter 12 and letter 13, apparently Wormwood writes back to Screwtape and says that there's a sort of conversion or um, maybe he's moving towards back towards God. And, of course, is Screwtape happy? Do you think Screwtape's happy with this? No, okay, this is no. Yeah, it's obvious, all right? You don't have to read the book. Screwtape is not happy about this. And so in this chapter, Screwtape writes about the, uh, the blunders of what might have led to this. He says, Wormwood, you have let uh, your patient read a book just because he likes to read that book and not because he wants to read it to get uh, in within the in crowd. Or you have allowed the patient to take a walk through the countryside just because he enjoys doing that. Now, reading a book, taking a walk through the countryside, it, it, I think we would say, are those really blunders? Are, are those really things that can lead us away from, uh, or lead us toward God? And the, the patient sees a sort of innocent pleasure in reading these books or doing these things that they enjoy because he enjoys it, not simply because everyone else is doing that. If you're under the age of 25, listen, you don't have to do things just because somebody else is doing them. My mom used to tell me, well, if Susie or Joey jumps off the bridge, does that mean you're going to jump off the bridge? Because my, but everybody's doing it, right? Come on. We know that's how it sometimes happens. You don't have to do it just because everybody else is doing it. And if you need to reread this chapter to get the bigger picture, man, this is, this is, uh, this is the thrust of this whole book is, uh, is to uh, kind of settle in here that the problem of doing things to please others while overlooking the simple pleasures God has given you. And the fear is because immersing yourself, the pride of the, per the patient is being overcome because by immersing himself in something he enjoys for its own sake and not for the sake of what others think. Now, what is going on here? What's he saying here? Well, here's the underlying current of what he's saying. This is the underlying truth, the spiritual truth of what he's saying. The underlying truth is that um, 
we don't have, there, that God creates us with pleasures. He wires us with certain enjoyments, things that we like to do. Some like to paint. Some like to uh, take a walk. Some like to be in a crowd and hear the noise. Not me. I, I'm not that way. Some like to be in what my kids call the bear cave. Let, don't wake the bear. The bear is in, he's hibernating for a little bit. I like to be alone. I recharge that way. And the way that God wires us, he does so because he wants those to be used for ministry. He wants those to be used for the kingdom, whether it's painting, whether it's teaching, whether it is uh, playing a sport. Yeah, even playing a sport, writing. I mean, these all can be used for the kingdom. The problem is, is when we, uh, when we take these gifts and we make them instruments to be liked by others. When we use these things to get our own heart's desires. To use these things to get to a place where, man, what, what does God think of me, not what other people think of me? You might have heard this before. When I, the, 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 not, I'm not talking about myself, but this is like a joke, I guess. I kind of set you up, so I'm expecting a laugh afterwards, all right? When I, thank you. When I was 20, I worried about what people thought of me. When I turned 40, I decided I didn't care what others thought of me. When I was 60, I realized that no one was even talking about me in the first place. <laughs> but Satan's goal is to get you worried about what everybody else is thinking. To get you thinking about what other people are doing and not what God is doing. Okay, I have to ask the question. I really do. I mean, what really drives someone to move away uh, to choose to follow others instead of uh, doing things and embracing things that they like. To do things that other people want them to do, to like and read instead of what we like to do. And um, sometimes it's because of social pressure. We, we, uh, people feel the pressure to conform to the norms and the expectations of others. And if they don't do what other people like, they believe, they feel that they will be judged and ostracized. Maybe it's the uh, desire to be accepted and to belong. We, we are social creatures and we often have this deep need to feel accepted and valued by others. People want to feel like we belong, and we want to believe that we're accepted and belonging. And the way you do that is to value what other people value, to do what everybody else is doing. And when you listen to what everybody else is doing, if you desire to be belong, to belong to them, then you have a deaf ear to what God has for you. And you miss the sacred worth that God speaks into you. Or FOMO. You all know what FOMO is? The fear of missing out. The common phenomenon in which we feel anxious about missing an opportunity. Or experience that others are enjoying. And this, what this can lead to is us prioritizing what everybody else is doing. So that we don't miss out. We're making those, those lists. 
And so the, the, the big game here is what um, screw tape is kind of zeroing in here. It is about the long game. If you can get the patient's eyes off the long game and on the short game, then you're actually winning. You're actually, actually um, have a foot in the door here. Get them not to see the trajectory, but get them to see the immediate right now. And how do we do this? Going back to the, the walk or going back to the reading of the book, you have to detach the patient from his own deepest desires. The way that God has created him so that by a result, slowly they, beget, they get detached from, from God. Here's what uh, Screwtape says, the deepest likings and impulses of any man are the raw material, the starting point with which the enemy has furnished them. That these become the raw materials that God has made this person, has made you, has made me, to be used to bring glory to him and to further the kingdom. So the, the long game of God also is at play here. So Satan has a long game, and, and so does God have a long game here. And the long game might be that, um, that we, uh, uh, for God, the long game is, is around the idea of, of, of uh, denying ourselves to, to get us to a place where we are um, uh, not uh, controlled by our desires. In fact, this is what Screwtape says to Wormwood about this. Of course, I know that the enemy also wants to detach people from themselves, but in a different way. Remember always that he really likes the little vermin. <laughs> and that's us. He really likes the little vermin and sets an absurd value on their distinctness, every one of them. When he talks about their losing their selves, he only really means abandoning the clamor of self-will. How can I use these for me right now? How can I use this, this, this uh, desire or myself, part of who I am, so that I can lean into what I can win here in this battle and not see the bigger, uh, the bigger goal, the bigger thing of God, what God is doing? And once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personalities, all their boasts. I'm afraid, quite sincerely, that when they are wholly his, they will be more themselves than ever before. Than ever before. What, 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 is, what is he saying in this passage? What he's saying here is that our deepest desires often reveal God's calling on our lives. And God has planted these desires. And if we can silence it, if Satan can silence these, then he can move our heart further and further gradually from God and what God is doing in our lives. So, the summary, God has a plan. To remove that noise, to remove that clamor, to renew, remove that, that, uh, that uh, um, the way Things and desires control us. 
we almost give these back to God as a means, as a way to say to ourselves and to God that these don't control us anymore. Only to find that God is going to give them back to us to be used for His kingdom. And then Satan's plan, the long game or whatever, is to, to, the, the, to substitute your desires with the world's desires. For you to listen more to what the world says about you, wants you to be, do, say, go, than what God wants you to be, to say, and to do. It reminds me of my first couple years of youth ministry. You know, something happens when a, a young boy or girl goes through puberty, enters into adolescence. If you take Katie Grace and you take Anna, my 20-year-old, our 20-year-old daughter and our 9-year-old daughter, they really are two different creatures, two different beings. Anna can see herself from a third point of view. That's what happens at adolescence. For the first time, you can actually see yourself from a third point of view. And you start asking yourself this question. I wonder what this person thinks. Do my clothes match? Did I bathe? Do I smell? Is my hair all prettied up? Okay, adolescence, that's what happens. All of a sudden, you start to see yourself from a third point of view. Katie has no idea. In fact, she doesn't even care if she sees herself from a third point of view. She can go four or five days, if we let her, without a bath. And it doesn't matter if she eats all the sugar or whatnot. She cannot see the, uh, the impact of what that means. And I think this is kind of like a God-given thing. It's an invitation for us in those moments when we feel driven, when we feel pulled to step outside of where God is, is, is growing, to ask the question, now, really, is God, is this really what God wants me to do? We are invited to step out and see ourselves from a third point of view. To actually see what, what is happening in, in our case or what's happening in the world around us. Because if you were going to take home um, two things to remember about these two chapters, it would be, first of all, remember that God is not a cosmic killjoy. That he's not up there giving you joys, giving you pleasures, giving you things that you like to do just so that he can take them away. It's not like he's up there and he, he calls over Gabriel and all the angels says, look, Kathy Ilgis is having fun. No. No, God is not that way. Now, he might take something away for a moment because it's controlling you only to give it back to you. And the second thing is to remember is look at the trajectory and ask yourself this question. Is this where I want to go? Is my response here in my desire to do what everybody else is doing, will that get me what I am designed to be? Will that make me 
more or less of what God has reminded me or created me to be? You know, Gil, if you don't say anything while the microphone's on, it will not pick up anything. Okay, I'll try to do better. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about the passage that we just looked at as sort of a, a capstone of, of where we are at this point. And uh, there's a discussion there about how God really likes a little vermin. And he's not a cosmic killjoy, as John so ably put it. Instead, he wants, if the pleasure is interfering with our ability to love him and to uh, subject our will to his, then he's going to put a damper on it. But he gives it back to us, made better than before. And he also does this as part of his plan to make us increasingly more and more like himself. There's that great passage in Romans where we're told that our common destiny as Christians is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so uh, it is this process of being conformed to the image of Christ where I think we need to leave off at this point. This is sort of the cliffhanger in the novel, what's going to happen next, uh, because the patient, uh, as he began uh, today's chapters is is once again on the horns of a dilemma where are we going next week 14 and 15 the very next two chapters very no image yeah you did yeah. 12 i did 13 yeah. 14, 14 and 50. 50 yeah yeah and yeah. those are only 10 pages long but they're 10 very important pages and so from this point on we're probably going to uh, focus a little more narrowly on just a couple of chapters at a time. The readings may become a little shorter but they're no less intense uh, and I would urge you as I said at the beginning maybe to read things a couple of times uh, because I find myself doing that and I still don't understand some of what I'm reading. So uh, just keep uh, digging away and uh, uh, we'll, we'll learn what it's all about together. As we go from this place, let us go knowing that God is yours and, he, uh, and you are his, that he has created you, that you have sacred worth, and that he has sent his son to die for you and to give you life and life abundantly. Amen.